surgeons keep our hearts beating. They do the amazing, help save lives, and so can you. Your CSL Plasma donation can help create 24 critical life-saving medicines that can give Grandpa the chance for his heart to swell when he meets his new grandson or give a bride the chance for her heart to skip a beat on her wedding day. Every plasma donation helps more than you know. Do the amazing. Help save lives. Donate today at your local CSL Plasma Center and be rewarded for your generosity. Hello and welcome to Let's Talk About It. This is Taylor, your host, and today we're going to be talking sexual shame and religious sexual shame. This episode has been long overdue and I'm so excited to share this interview with you all. My guest this episode is absolutely fantastic. She does so many things in this space and I know is just going to leave you all with some really super valuable information and things to reflect on. So let me share with you all a little bit about her. This interview is with Dr. Tina Sellers, and she's a sex therapist and a former professor of marriage and family therapy at Seattle Pacific University. She's the founder of the Northwest Institute on Intimacy. She's an ASECT certified supervisor, and ASECT is the uh, certification for sex therapists. She's a mother. She's a wife. She's an author. Uh, We're going to talk about her book, Sex, God, and the Conservative Church, that was written to not only just everyday people, but also clinicians to help explain um, what it means to grow up with abstinence education or a faith that is mirrored in sexual shame and dysfunction. Uh, The book actually walks readers through a critique of American culture and the conservative Christian church and its effects on intimate partnerships and lives, and then begins to reveal the hidden mystical sex and body positive understanding of sexuality of the Hebrew people. And the book also includes strategies for a new sexual ethic, for clinical steps to heal sexual shame, and specific sex therapy interventions that clinicians can use directly in their practice and offers a four-step model that we're going to get into in this interview for healing religious sexual shame and touch and non-touch exercises that will help bring healing and intimacy into your life. Tina honestly does so much in this space and this interview was so amazing. Um, She is also currently working on her next book, which is intended to help parents raise their children free of sexual shame and appropriately teach them about healthy sexuality over each stage of their development. So definitely make sure to follow Tina on Instagram at Dr. Tina Shameless Sex um, to be able to stay in touch and get notifications about when she does drop her new book. Uh, But otherwise, definitely need to check out Sex God and the Conservative Church book that she wrote. And before we get into the interview with Dr. Tina, I do want to share some um, listener letters that I received just to set the stage a little bit for what some of you have experienced um, in terms of religious sexual shame. So these are going to be read anonymously and just want to say I super appreciate all of you who submitted questions for this. That definitely helped um, kind of frame the questions that I asked Dr. Tina. So most of your questions uh, that you did ask around sexual shame and religious sexual shame should get answered in this episode. And if not, you will have to check out her book for more more resources on this. Um, But yeah, thank you for your vulnerability in these two letters that I'm going to read with you um, that really just share a very vulnerable, honest look at what their religious sexual shame shaped them to be and and how it impacted them. Our first listener writes, 
I am a 24-year-old gal from Texas. I was raised in a very religious household. My father was a youth pastor from when I was born to around 12 years old. We left our church after his head pastor had an affair and burned all his bridges. However, my parents are still incredibly religious. From an early age, I was taught to be modest and to share my body only with my future husband. Masturbation, sex, and body image were completely off limits in my family. No one spoke about them, and if they were spoken about, it was very, very negative. Obviously, this contributed to a lot of shame growing up. Thankfully, I was able to explore a lot of my sexuality when I went off to college, and while I still struggle with some aspects surrounding masturbation and sex, I believe it stems from my next point. I was obviously not allowed to have a boyfriend growing up, but that was never going to stop me. I wish it had, but I was young and forbidden love was exciting. I started dating my first boyfriend when I was 15. It got really abusive really fast and I had no one to speak to about it because of how terrified I was of my parents. I was sexually assaulted by my partner from ages 17 to 21. I never spoke a word of this to my family until one day, years later, my dad pieced my mood swings and fear of physical touch together. My dad was devastated, as any parent would be, but him and my mother refused to believe that they played any role in what happened to me. I don't necessarily think that they are to blame, but I have had to work through a lot of resentment stemming from the fact that I had no safe adult to speak to. I know my parents did the best they could, but I believe that if there had been less shame around sex and I was able to have an open conversation with them about anything regarding safe sex, I might, not, I might have been more open and honest with them about what was happening to me. After a lot of therapy and years of hard emotional labor, I'm in the happiest and healthiest relationship with a man who continues to prioritize my safety and well-being. I'm also a middle school teacher and I have open conversations with my students once a month regarding safe sex, masturbation, abortion, and other topics that they may not be well educated on. Taylor, you've been such a light for me over the last few years. I'm so much more open to learning about myself and my body. I hope you know that you make a huge impact on many lives. And I'm so thankful to follow such an open and honest person. Thank you so much to this listener for writing in with their story. I'm like trying to fight back tears here. Um, I am on my period, but, um, but this is just so, so vulnerable of you to share. And I think that so much of, of what you wrote in here is exactly why conversations like the one that I'm having with Tina today is, is essential, is absolutely important. Um, the lack of sex education that we receive, um, doesn't teach us, you know, what a healthy relationship looks like. And unfortunately, uh, you know, you're, you're not alone in this. This happens for so many of us, um, where we don't understand the healthy boundaries around sex, where we don't understand, um, what it means to communicate about pleasure and about sex in a relationship. And like you said in, in your letter here that, you know, there wasn't someone safe to speak to. And that is just such a shame and makes my heart really hurt for you. And I'm so happy that you were able to have the therapy that you needed and that you are now in a happy, healthy relationship. Um, 
this kind of thing definitely takes years. <laughs> it takes years. Um, you know, if you think about all the years that you were programmed with this kind of thinking around sex, it's going to take a while to also reframe that. And that's going to take a lot of practice. So I'm so proud for you that you were able to have that courage and that dedication to put that work in and that it is paying off for you. So thank you so much again for sharing that. That's just, oh my gosh, <laughs> emotional. Um, I'm going to read one more letter here for you all before I share this interview with Dr. Tina. Um, and here we go. Just a quick view for your podcast episode today. I grew up with, in a conservative Christian family, went to Christian schools, worked and volunteered at churches, and went to a Christian university. The conditioning around sex was sex equals bad. If you have sex, you are a bad person. The decision to not wait until marriage was a months and months long one. Would I still be me? Would God still love me? Is this okay or wrong? A terrible sin? Expressing your sexuality and feeling whole with sexuality as a part of the whole of yourself seems like so many big things to work through. Having had sex took years for me to not feel guilt about. A big win, I don't feel guilty about having sex. I've had casual sex and I'm living with someone now and I don't feel guilty about those things. I thought I was over it. But it's all the small ways in which it messes with you. Being passive is celebrated in a Christian conservative perspective about sex. Sexuality is something you ignore about yourself and deny and is a negative thing about human nature that you have to repress. So it can be very difficult to figure out how to express this part of yourself and how to bring it in as a part of your person. Being a woman who knows and expresses her own sexuality is so discouraged in that culture. And learning how to do that is hard and takes a lot longer than letting go of the guilt. It's something I've learned in the last few months. It's something I haven't addressed and need to go to therapy for, really. So that's the plan when all of this is over. I feel like I was rambling, but I just want to emphasize that not only being sexually active, but communicating, saying what you want, exploring your sexual self, all of that is harder to know that religion has affected it and how to change it than the face of just shame and guilt. Thanks, and I super enjoy you normalizing things I still find hard to talk about and discuss easily. Thank you so much to this listener for writing this letter. I'm going to try to not cry again. <laughs> First, I want to say that uh, just... I, I'm really, I'm really, really looking forward to you listening to this interview with Tina. Um, I'm really happy that you are going to address this, going to therapy, uh, and know that you don't have to wait until all this is over. There are online resources. Um, one I will share in this episode, and um, yeah, there's a lot of therapists are seeing people uh, remotely, virtually now. So definitely don't feel like you have to wait until quarantine time is, is done to receive that help. Um, but I also just want to say that, yeah, this, this guilt or shame can present itself in so many different ways. And there's layers here, right, to pull back. Um, 
And oh my goodness, I just, I want to hug both of these listeners um, and just so, so, so appreciate you being vulnerable here with me. Um, I, I do believe that, yes, God will still, still love you through having sex, um, whoever this God is for you. And I do want to preface the rest of this episode with just saying that, you know, none of this is a, is a bash that God is bad or that you shouldn't have faith or that you shouldn't have your religion. Um, that's not at all what this is. And I just want to be very clear about that, that you'll kind of hear as as this interview with Tina goes that, um, you know, it's important to figure out what your values are and that your values are present in your faith and in your religion. Um, I'll let, I'll let her continue to, <laughs> to share on that end. Um, but just again, want to say thank you so much to those of you that wrote these letters and submitted your questions that we get to in this episode. Um, please be sure to share this with your friends. Um, if you know anyone, you know, who has struggled with sexual shame, which let's be honest, is really everyone, <laughs> regardless if it's religious sexual shame or not. Um, the way that we fight through this shame is through talking about it. Silence only feeds shame. So the more that we hear these things, the more we know that we're not alone, the less shame that we feel in it, the more encouraged we feel to share our own stories. And there is so much, so, so, so much power in that. So definitely be sure to share this with a friend or two. Um, And if you have time after this podcast, would love for you to leave a review on iTunes, either just a star rating or um, leave a sentence or two about, you know, what you took away from the episode, what you like about the show as a whole. Um, I super appreciate all of your support in this and having these really tough conversations. And I hope that it is super helpful for you all. I just want this to be helpful. All right, time for a short break here. I get so many messages on the regular about therapy and what resources are available online for therapy. And so I want to share with you all again, one of my favorite go-tos, which is BetterHelp. They are so committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. They make it super easy and free to change counselors if you need. Um, It's affordable, um, sometimes more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is also available. The service is available for clients worldwide. You simply take a uh, a short quiz um, to help them assess your needs. You get matched with a therapist within 24 hours. And remember, these are licensed professionals that you're working with. So um, anything you share is confidential. It's professional. BetterHelp makes it really convenient. Um, And I want you to start living a happier, healthier life. So as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash talk about it. You can join over 800,000 people. That's a lot of people (laughs) taking charge of their mental health. And why not be one of them? Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash talk about it. And now we can get back to the show. Um, I do think very strongly that this episode with Tina is going to be incredibly helpful for you all. So without any further ado, let's talk about it. All right. Welcome, Tina, to the show. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. I'm so excited. So you are actually also a Seattle native. Uh, Did you grow up here? I did. I did. I spent, I took a little bit of a break and was in Southern California for my teens and twenties. And those people that are around my age know that we had a big exodus 
in the 70s. Um, okay. <laughs> Boeing was our major employer and it had oh. a big layoff and um, people. So I just turned 60 and there were big billboards up and down I-5 that said, the last one to go, turn off the lights. And we were one of the families that exited. And so my dad worked for a subsidiary company. And so we left right before I went to seventh grade. And I lived down for my teens and twenties, which was actually a great place to live for your teens and twenties. But when it came to going to grad school, I was like, took my little tiny family and said, I want to go home. Yeah. Wow, that's that's some some great history there. Um, happy belated birthday! Thank um, you. And yeah, you brought up your your dad there, and part of in my I like to say my my stalking work that I do before I meet with a guest um, <laughs> through my investigative research. Um, I learned that you really credit a lot of getting into this field and having this open uh, perception and, and sex positive outlook to your family. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, you know, I, I didn't realize it till I was probably well into my thirties, but I say I grew up in, um, a, a sound bite sex family. So I grew up in a Swedish immigrant family Mm-hmm. And it was primarily non-religious. I had these two aunts, well, actually three aunts that had this lovely sort of faith, but otherwise it was pretty non-religious family. And, um, but it was a Swedish immigrant family. And for those people that know how the Northern Europeans do sex and sex education, it's been since the early 40s, very, very sex positive and very body mm-hmm. positive. And so my whole family, my grandparents, my great aunts and uncles were all that way. And so I learned about sexuality and bodies like you learn about brushing your teeth and how you cook spaghetti and whatever. Mm-hmm. It was just an everyday conversation for as long as I can remember with everybody. Yeah. And I didn't know that that's not how every family was until mm-hmm. literally I was in my 30s. And, Hmm. um, and so to me, it was just normal. It was just a good part of life. And I looked around and saw it as a good part of everybody else's life. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I didn't really confront the impact of sexual shame until I saw it in the lives of my clients and in the lives of my students way Mm -hmm. later in life. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, what a wonderful, almost sort of bubble to be in, um, while also in this American culture, um, was it, I guess you're saying not until later in life. So during your adolescence then, and throughout schooling, then I take it that the people that you were around kind of had similar upbringings to you or had similar mindsets. Yeah. There was this sort of parallel process that happened. So I had this thing at home that gave me sort of this grounding, but Mm -hmm. then I had a lot of the normal stuff that happened. Like, you know, I thought, well, cause I'm, I'm built kind of stocky. I was a figure skater growing up. And so I had the things like, well, I'm, I'm certainly not, because at that point I was in Southern California, I'm certainly not a Southern California model, but I'm, I'm okay. You know, sort of like, mm-hmm. so, so I had this grounding, but then I would also sort of see what was on media and that kind of thing. But also remember that we are very 
situated by where we are in culture. So in the 70s, things again were very sort of sex positive. It was just past the hippie era. It was Mm -hmm. kind of love the one you're with. The music, if you listen to the music in the 70s, that's always a really good way to find out what culture was like is listen to the music of that era. It was very sort of love positive, sex positive kind of time. And so there wasn't as much of that kind of judgment and harshness. There certainly Mm -hmm. wasn't the aggression against women time during then. And so I I just didn't get hit with quite as much. There certainly was some of that Mm -hmm. stuff, you know, that you weren't, you were compared as not being quite as whatever this or that is beautiful or whatever, but just not quite as much, you Mm -hmm. know, as I think kids for sure are hit with now. Yeah. Yeah. And so it definitely, I think kids are hit with a ton of that today. Um, Even I think from, you know, I was born in 93 and I think even throughout early 2000s, like it's, it was not, not the most sex positive culture to grow up in. All right. Time for a short break here. It is masturbation month. It is the month of May. And I want to share with all of you lovely listeners, one of my favorite sex toy brands, which is Plus One. Their products are designed with body safe materials um, encased in soft silicone, making every product waterproof and skin friendly. There's USB rechargeable batteries. At mine, usually I just keep on the charger throughout the day and then at night I'm ready to go. Uh, The toys can vibrate for hours, as long as you can. <laughs> uh, each one is ultra hygienic and easy to clean, providing self-pleasure with the touch of a button. While many sex toys are expensive, Plus One is democratizing pleasure with high-quality vibrators and arousers at a cost everyone can afford. You can easily find them at your local Target, Walmart, or CVS, and they are now available at Walmart Canada. So, Canadians, where are you at? You can visit walmart.ca to find your plus one. So be sure to check them out. They're one of my favorites. They have a new wand that you can check out, but also one of my favorites is the air pulsing arouser. That that one, ooh, that's, I've named her Jill. Jill, Jill and I were real close. <laughs> so be sure to check them out. And I hope that you guys uh, love them as much as I do. And now we can get back to the show. When you say that this work for you kind of came up throughout the work that you were seeing with your clients, can you talk a little bit about how that was presenting itself? Like what, right. what really brought you into this area of not just sexual shame, but also religious sexual shame? Right. So I started teaching in the Graduate Marriage and Family Therapy Program at Seattle Pacific University in 1991 to yeah. right around there. And... Um, So one of the courses I was asked to teach pretty right off the bat was the graduate human sexuality course. And Mm. mostly because a lot of the other professors didn't want to teach it. Well, I had, before going to grad school, I had taught junior high and high school. And it was really teaching there that I started to realize what people were facing in their home lives. Mm-hmm. kids, you know, at young adolescents. And I thought, oh, I really want to go back to schools, to go to graduate school and study family therapy. Because if mm-hmm. I can make interventions at the family level, that'll make me feel like my life is really mattering for something even more than it was with teaching. So that's what took me to, to go back to grad school. Mm-hmm. So then I actually got, I was asked to start teaching in the program that I had graduated from pretty right away. Yeah. So then because I had been teaching sexuality at the junior high level, 
one of my profs was like, oh, hey, you want to start teaching with me in this class too? I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. of course. Because for me, teaching sexuality is a blast. Yeah. So I started teaching that course. And one of the assignments that I gave my students was writing their sexual autobiography. Now, a lot mm-hmm. of times people hear that and they're like, ah, I can't imagine doing that, right? <laughs> but as you know, Taylor, that you're only ever as good a therapist as you know what your own stories are, right? Because then you know where you begin and end as a therapist and your clients begin Mm -hmm. and end, right? So throughout our program, we would have our students write their gender story, their family of origin story, Mm -hmm. right? Their medical illness story, their sexuality story. Mm -hmm. So I would give my students like 65, 70 questions or something and not to answer each one, but to guide them through three generations of thinking about sexuality and gender to -hmm. just help them see what were the legacies that they grew up with? What were the experiences that they had to really get them to think thoughtfully through Mm -hmm. their life experience? Well, they didn't often take this class until towards the end because I wanted them to have already dealt with a family of origin story, dealt with their gender story, right? Because sexuality is so loaded. So loaded. And they would often say to me, this was one of the hardest, but one of the most important papers I wrote. Mm -hmm. And I would spend anywhere from an hour to two hours on these papers. Well, Mm -hmm. somewhere around 2000, the year 2000, I started to notice that there was a dramatic increase in what I came to call sexual shame and religious Mm -hmm. sexual shame. So this dramatic increase in self-loathing, you know, kind of a sense of unworthiness, yeah. hatred about themselves, hatred about them, their bodies, hatred about what they had sexually, hatred about what they had felt sexually, thought sexually, even though what they were describing about what they had felt, uh, thought, and done throughout their growing up years was completely in the range of normal. Their, mm-hmm. their experiences were not any different than what I had read the previous eight or nine years. It was right in there. Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden, what they had felt and thought and the, de- the decisions they had made about their own self-worth had completely begun to shift. So I saw it that year, the next year, the next year. And I would be weeping. Like I would walk into my chair's office and just like be crying. Like, I don't know what's happened in these kids' lives. Like, I, yeah. nothing that they're describing is making this make sense to me. So I started to ask more questions of my students, like, what more was happening? And you like, explain to me what more was happening in your life. And I slowly mm-hmm. started to piece together that some of my students were from conservative religious backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Some of them were getting this education in their public schools. So eventually I pieced together that, so this was the, er, they were hitting their adolescence in the early nineties. So they're about your age, hitting their adolescence in the early nineties and they were getting abstinence education, which really was almost the same thing that some of these kids were getting also in their church youth groups. And it was, you cannot think about sexuality. You cannot feel about sexuality and the information they were getting in their quote unquote sex education, which was abstinence education, was Mm -hmm. just all scary. And it was all medically, 80% was medically inaccurate. That's what we know now. Medically inaccurate. That's so bad. That's so bad. It was really scary. Like if you use condoms, you're still going to get diseases and here's what the diseases are going to look like, you know? (sighs) And this, some of this stuff is still being taught today. Yeah. 
you know? Yeah. So, so some of these kids, the more anxious and the more earnest kids really metabolized this information, took it into their bodies and believed that they shouldn't not only do these things, but they shouldn't feel or want these things either. And so it began to manifest in just horrible sexual dysfunction, self-hatred, you know, Mm -hmm. self-examination. And, um, and it was, it just caused me so much sadness. Yeah, no, I can imagine. And, you know, when you say that it, it was presenting itself in this way of that, that even just them wanting it is something that they shouldn't desire. Uh, That's even something literally this week that I was working with a client on who doesn't necessarily have religious sexual shame, but still feels like sex is, you know, sex is a form of pleasure. And often we're taught that pleasure comes after we've earned it, right? After, um, after you've achieved marriage, right? After you've finished all of your work for the day and your house is completely clean and, you know, you've checked in with all your family members that then, then you deserve to experience that pleasure. But even then the desire for it is like not something you should necessarily want, especially as a woman, because then that might mean you're a slut. Um, Exactly. That's exactly it. And it's so pervasive across this culture, you know, from mm-hmm. if you're like under 40, you know, it's just, yeah. it's right across the whole culture. Yeah. And when you say that you kind of started to see this gradual uh, change in the papers that you were reading around how the students were feeling about sex, um, that makes sense culturally with that shift. Was there not still some of that from um, the earlier times working with students where the religious sexual shame was coming in because the, the, the concepts around re- religion and sex and how that's taught to people in my perception, at least hasn't really changed for like decades and decades. So no, was so that it still present? Has. It okay. actually has. So again, religion will match what's happening in culture. It, it will follow that. So mm-hmm. in the 70s, 60s and 70s, there was a movement called the Jesus Movement. And again, you had the hippies and all of that. The Jesus Movement was, again, really similar. It was sort of love the one you're with. So while it wasn't <laughs> go and be wild, it was, yeah. oh, my gosh, well, if you've gotten caught up in LSD, if you've gotten caught up in a, we forgive you. Jesus is so loving. Jesus oh, is yeah. not a condemning God. Come in here. We will ex- we will take care of you. In fact, if you have a testimony that God has saved you from this, you are just even more of a testimony mm-hmm. of God's grace. And yeah. that's when the Christian rock and roll music just really exploded while at the same time, all the other rock and roll music was exploding. You know, mm. they had these big revival churches that didn't look anything like a church, you know, yeah. they were meeting in the schools. And I mean, there was this parallel process. And so you didn't have this crackdown of legalism in the Protestant church. This is the Protestant church, primarily in the mm. Protestant church until the eighties, which was exactly when the, the, uh, religious right and the moral majority politically, decided to merge church and state and make abortion the issue politically, which looks like it was religious, but it wasn't. It was secular, right? Mm. And this is when Ronald Reagan became president, right? And Mm. it's also when we began to, it looked religious, but it was political. We began to 
pump money into abstinence education. We began to also simultaneously remove all the regulations from banking and from media and make it okay to just show whatever you wanted on TV. This was also beginning of the influx of internet, Mm. um, video games and violence against women and uh, media and music video, music, uh, uh, music, um, uh, what do we call it? Like music, music, video. um, Music videos, videos and, and just mm-hmm. music in general could be violent. And it, we had no mm-hmm. regulations on that whatsoever because we removed them. And that was because it didn't matter how you made money. It only mattered that you made money. We did not have that ethic prior to 1980. It did matter how you made the money. We had mm-hmm. a responsibility. We had an ethic on that. But that ethic changed in 1980 and we had a push in capitalism under the guise of family values. Hmm. It was a merging of church and state that happened politically. Yeah. Yeah. And the church simultaneously became more conservative, quote unquote, and legalistic. So these things happened, but it was not like that prior to that for a series of years. Now, if you fly up at the 40,000 foot level, what you'll find if you travel over the 2000 years that we've had Christianity is you're going to see that whenever there was a plague or whatever there was an economic downturn or something like that, we got more conservative as a culture. Mm-hmm. And then whenever things were going well, we got a little bit more lax and it's because the people in power could use the fear of the public to then push whatever they wanted to get what they wanted. And I don't say this. Some of your listeners might go, oh, well, she's really anti-religion or anti-faith. I am not Mm -hmm. at all. I really believe that people's faith is a really important part of their life. But religion, organized religion, often the people in power will use that to manipulate the people of faith. And if they're gullible to it, they will get swept away. So it's really important that people get clear about what their faith is based on and make sure that what's happening, that the, what the church might be saying, matches what really is at the core of their faith. Like if their faith is about love and justice, don't let themselves get pulled away by something that's not based on love and justice, right? Wow. I'm ready to take all the all all your all your classes. Sign me up for all of them now. <laughs> but that's part of why I wrote the book because I saw mm. so many people whose faith was really important to them, gay, lesbian, trans, straight, cis, right? Whose faith was really important and they were feeling like they had to choose between mm. living an authentic sexual life based in love and justice and their faith. And I was like, "No, honey, you do not have to choose." Mm-hmm. because your faith is based in love and justice. So you shouldn't have to choose. And so I just went looking in, I asked the question, had Christianity always been sex negative because it was sex negative recently? Yeah. And so I went all the way back in history and asked that question. And Christianity through the fourth century has been sex negative, but Jesus was Mm -hmm. not sex negative. He did not condemn people who made quote unquote sexual mistakes Mm -hmm. and he was not body negative. So then I said, well, then how did that happen? Mm. And so then I went further on the Abrahamic line into Jewish history. And there is so Mm -hmm. much. So Jesus was sex positive and body positive. And then further on the Abrahamic 
sex positivity. And so I just brought it forward in the book and said, here's what we should have been learning. Here's what you should have been learning. And just mm-hmm. showed people that the history that they got was not the history that they were meant to get so that people knew they could hold on to their faith. So I did wow. that. And then I gave that model and I did a whole lot of other things for people. Wow. And yeah, you're doing so much here. Even I'm trying to jot down some like good times here. And I'm like, every minute is a great <laughs> moment. Like, this is all so great. Um, I want to talk about the the book a little bit too, but just on this point here, because predominantly we're talking about Christianity, but um, I'm curious how you've seen throughout different religions, sexual shame present itself differently. I know you just mentioned uh, for Hebrew that that there was more actual body positivity and sexuality. Yes, exactly. So a lot of times you will talk to people who are in the Jewish faith and they will talk about sex positivity. But I've talked to some people and they will say, well, there are different sort of lines of Jewish thinking And some of them are more sex positive and some of them are more sex negative. And again, it depends on how that particular line of Jewish thinking um, got constructed by Mm -hmm. the organized religion of that particular line. And again, Mm -hmm. because organized religion is constructed by people, it, it has its ways of trying to control people. And sexuality feels uncontrollable, mm-hmm. right? It, it feels yeah. scary to lots of people. And, um, and so people do lots of things to try to control it, frankly, yeah. and, and really to control the minority people, the people who are not in control, which is often Absolutely. the women and other people, you know, and they try to keep the people in power in control. And you just see that. And we see that mm-hmm. across human, the human experience. Yeah. The, the people in power are trying to stay in power. And they do typically that white men, <laughs> typically <Exactly>. white men, <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, you know, there, there's the saying of like, you know, most wars are all started because of penises and, you know, whose dick is bigger. And <laughs> I can't and, help, but my mind go there when we talk about this. Right. It, it, it is men across the globe, mm-hmm. regardless of color. It is often men across the globe. The, the ones mm-hmm. in power yes. are trying to hold on to that power. And I get that that's scary to feel like you have to let go of it or you have to share it or you have to collaborate. I get that that feels feels difficult and frightening, but Mm -hmm. it is where we need to go. Yeah. Well, and even, you know, talking about that control piece, often even how I, you know, grew up and I think even today, this notion is still out there that boys will be boys and boys just have a strong sexual appetite and they're just gonna, you know, it's gonna be totally normal and natural for them to want to have multiple sex partners and and all of this where like they are in control of their sexuality, but also that they don't have to control it at all because they can just do whatever they want, basically. Right. That they don't have to bear responsibility for what they do and what they say. As opposed to all humans have a responsibility to bear responsibility for what they do and what they say, period, end of story. Yeah. Bam. So I want to talk about this book because your book, Sex, God, and the Conservative Church, um, covers a lot of what we've talked about here, but um, you talk about a new sexual ethic for people. I wonder mm-hmm. if you can talk about what what either you see today or what you want to see today as this new sexual ethic that we can live by. 
Well, I, I don't push an ethic so much as I say that um, I talk about that there needs to be, you know, love and justice in what you mm-hmm. say and what you do. And yeah. it needs to have love and justice towards you and love and justice towards any other or others. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and if you do have a faith and it needs to be in alignment with whatever those values are for you as well. And, and I think that as we are accountable then to those you know, one, two or three things along the way, and we are checking that, then we are going to be acting in a way that feels good to us, feels right to us. Mm -hmm. Right. And then it's not about what am I doing? It's not about a behavior and it's not about an after an event. It's an all the time thing. It's something Mm -hmm. I'm accountable to all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's honoring then to me and to other and to whatever my my values are right. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people are like, well, that's just not clear enough. That's not black and white. And I'm like, well, life isn't black and white, you know, mm-hmm. being accountable to love and justice is a good thing. And yes, it holds us accountable. And that's, that's okay that it's messy. Mm-hmm. We live in messiness. Welcome to life. You know, that absolutely. is the way it is. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And Part of, I mean, there's some listener questions here that that we'll get to, but um, in in a lot of the ways that we've, at least that I've experienced shame and that I've heard from listeners, how they experience sexual shame, and I'm sure how you've um, heard from people as well, that it that sexual shame that comes up that we're feeling isn't actually in alignment with those things that we value around love and justice. And so feeling them can feel almost kind of like a little bit of a mind fuck where like you're, you're behaving in this way where, you know, I've heard from some listeners that, you know, they'll, they'll wait until marriage to have sex because that's what their religion has told them is proper and, and healthy and respectful to do. But in their hearts, they, they want to experience that um, and then end up feeling this shame for wanting to experience this love and sexual connection with their partner. That's right. Absolutely. And when we talk about, you know, love and justice, it, it is predicated on some basic things. Like that means I'm going to have to talk. That means first I'm going to have to think about yeah. what I think is love and justice for me, for right now, for in this relationship, for whatever, I, I'm going to have to think and then I'm going to have to speak, right? Mm-hmm. Those are hard things to do. But because I matter, I'm going to have to do that. And because Ooh. you matter, we're going to have to do this. And, and then, but all of that grows you. All of mm-hmm. that grows you up and helps you count, helps the relationship count, helps the other count. Isn't that part of what we're called to do, right? Mm-hmm. I often think of it as it's the art of loving. It's the learning the art of loving. It's learning the art of judge justice then mm-hmm. to do those things. Those are active things. That's a, that's a verb, right? Mm-hmm. That's all good. But you think about it. We don't teach this, yeah. right? Because we don't have comprehensive sex education, because we don't have comprehensive life and relationship education, we don't yeah. teach this. And yeah, yet we even- should be. Yeah. Even that step of I matter, you matter, like even just getting to that of saying, wait, I matter, especially in a, in, in, in the opportunity to experience your sexuality, I matter, my sexuality matters is very difficult for people to get to, even for me sometimes. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. But imagine we started that at 
you know, 10, 11 months when kids are finding their penis and their vulva for the first time, like, yep, that's what it is. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to put, keep putting your diaper on. You matter. That yeah. matters. It all matters. And mm-hmm. we're going to take care of it. And I'm going to keep cleaning it and whatever, you know, you mm-hmm. just, it all matters. Yeah. And we take care of it. And we take care of your brother or your sister or your whatever, da, da, da. you know, mm-hmm. it's just all woven into life. That's yeah. what it looks like. Oh, gosh. So as we talk about all this sexual shame here, um, part of what you outline in the book is a four-step model for healing religious sexual shame, um, both in touch and non-touch exercises to help people okay. heal that intimacy and, and increase that uh, experience of intimacy in their lives. Um, people have asked, uh, one of the listeners wrote in and was like, yeah, I want some concrete steps on how to overcome religion shame. Most advice I get is just to get over it. Um, and I think it can feel so overwhelming for people to say, okay, you know, I've been programmed and received this messaging for 30, 15, 20, however many years, 50 years, right? And how in the world do I get to a place of actually experiencing sexual pleasure without shame? Right. I I often want to say, first and foremost, be compassionate with yourself. You know, I love, like many people love Brene Brown's work. I mean, her work is so wonderful and it's helped so many people understand the impact of shame. Mm Mm-hmm. One of the important things to understand is sexual shame is our first shame. It's our very, for most people, it's your very first shame. And that's because our hands stop like smacking us when we're about 10 months old. That's when we start to gain control over our hand and realize that we can choose where it goes. Hmm. And, that's and then we're like, we're going to put it right down here. Happens. And then it finds its way to our genitals when usually when we're getting our diapers changed or when we're in the bathtub or whatever, right around mm-hmm. 10 months old. And between 10 months and a year, we get really good at getting it there. You know, mm-hmm. we're like, I got it. My diaper's coming off or I'm in the bathtub, right? And we get really excited about that because we have 8,000 nerve endings if we have a clitoris mm-hmm. and we have about five to six, if we have a penis, you know, and that is a pretty exciting thing, right? And if we have a parent that is not comfortable with that, that hand is getting slapped away or somebody's saying dirty, dirty, don't, you know, mm-hmm. but that's not stopping us. So that is happening hundreds and hundreds of times before that first memory that we usually have when we're playing doctor with a friend or a cousin or a sibling or whatever when we're five or six. Mm -hmm. So we've been shamed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. It's in our DNA before, way before then. So it's deep within us. And so this is even before we've had somebody suggest that God, you know, doesn't like it either. Right. And Mm -hmm. so one of the things that's important to understand is the difference between shame and guilt Shame mm-hmm. is I'm bad. Yeah. Right. Because whenever we're doing something that is natural to us and someone we love gets angry with us, the only meaning we can make is that it's me. Mm-hmm. It's not what I did. It's me. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what's different about guilt. Guilt is when I do something and it's against my own ethic. And then I'm like, I shouldn't have done that, mm-hmm. that yeah. behavior. Right. Yeah. So, 
shame is about me as a whole, my mm-hmm. entirety, right? Yeah. So shame is so, sexual shame is so deeply inside of us. And we didn't have an oper- a researched operational definition of sexual shame until 2017 what? when there was, yeah. And, and I could read it to you. It's so stunning. It's unbelievable how it affects our ability to attach and love someone. Like it affects everything, every area of your ability to do intimacy and attach and trust and mm-hmm. open yourself up. And so it was actually by a researcher, a research um, doctoral student at SPU, and I was on her dissertation committee. And it, it, when I saw it in black and white, it had been what I had seen clinically. But when mm-hmm. I saw it in black and white, it just about knocked me over. It was so incredible. It was like, this is why we have to help people heal. Because mm-hmm. being able to attach and intimacy is one of our core places we do happiness in our lives, right? Yeah. So- so in the four, in the, what I call healing the mess, the model for erasing sexual shame, the four areas, and it's not linear. It's something we do over, we practice, practice, it's a practice yep. we do over and over and over again. So mm-hmm. it's frame, name, claim, and aim. Okay. So frame is the first one. It's building a frame or a scaffolding of mm-hmm. sex education. So because we don't get that ex- education, We have Mm -hmm. so much myth in our heads about what really is true about these bodies of ours. And there's a lot to unlearn. We have so much to unlearn and Mm -hmm. then relearn, right? And once we get clear, we're like, oh my gosh, I'm okay. I'm I'm actually good. Like Mm -hmm. this body is phenomenal. Built for pleasure. A lot of bullshit that was Mm -hmm. so not okay. And you start to feel strong and empowered and like you start to take it back take it back, you know, and that feels so good. So you have to do some work there. And I have like on my Instagram and stuff, I have recommendations for books and Mm -hmm. stuff. And I'm always like telling people on my my, uh, website too, I'm always telling people, here's some things to do, places to go, things to read, um, because it's just worth doing the work. That's frame. Name is tell your story. So this comes from like Brene Brown's work. Yeah. The more you tell your story to a tribe of people that will love you, be empathic and compassionate, or a therapist, mm-hmm. um, or you create a book group with other people, read my book together, and then stop every half chapter and like tell your story, talk about it, be like, yes, this is what I relate to. I whatever. feel like probably every page you could be stopping and have stuff to talk about. <laughs> yeah, right. Then you're like, I'm not alone. This happened Mm -hmm. to everybody. If you hit your adolescence after 1990, it did happen to you, I promise. Unless you grew up in Europe, Mm -hmm. it did happen to you. It did. And it was so wrong. It was so unfair. It should not have happened to you at all. So Mm -hmm. that's name. Tell your story and find out that you're not alone. Be loved in your story because that will help the shame begin to fall off of you. A little drip off of you. So frame, name, claim. This is hard. Start to claim your body back as good. The Mm -hmm. bullshit that we get from advertisers and marketers is so pervasive and so awful that it begins to convince us that our bodies are not good. So we have 50% of six-year-olds Two-thirds of nine-year-olds, 90% of 15-year-olds that are modifying their diets. 
That's how successful our media is in convincing kids that their bodies are not good. We have to understand that our bodies are the way they are because of heredity. So when we have people swimming in an ocean, they are fish, and those fish believe by the time that they're six that they should be giraffes. Hmm. It that's is a, not right. Yeah, they that's are a great way to giraffes put Giraffes and they are bears and they are every other kind of creature because that's the way God intended. The creator, the divine, the feminine, whatever created us to be this cornucopia that we are supposed to be because it's beautiful. Yeah. We are not all supposed to be whatever, six foot three and 110 and disappear like a feather. Mm-hmm. We are not. So it's ridiculous and it's there so that we purchase and keep our economy going because it's based on us feeling badly about ourselves. Men and women, primarily women for the longest amount of time, but we have an increase in boys doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. So the two books I'm always saying that people should read are Peggy Ornstein's most recent books, Girls in Sex and Boys in Sex, okay. because it just shows so much how horrible things are um, mm-hmm. and what we are doing to our kids and how it's been increasing, especially in the last like 20 years. So the last 40 years have been horrible, but it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And mm-hmm. if we don't really create a revolution that says, over my dead body, will you keep doing this to me and my children? No, it stops now. Hmm. So that's frame name claim. And then if you do those three things over and over and you're diligent and you create a tribe of people that are like, hell no, over my dead body, then what you will do is you will aim for a new legacy and this will stop. Yeah. A new sexual ethic. Yeah. You can stop it in one generation. I mean, it stopped, didn't happen in mine, you know, the things, believe me, were not perfect in my family. There was a lot that was nuts and crazy, but I rest my, so much of my grounding and foundation on the sexual health in Mm -hmm. my family and my little sister too. I mean, there was really, there was a lot that was nutso, but this Mm -hmm. stuff really made raising our kids so much easier and it'll make raising their kids so much easier because there's a lot around sexuality that helps mm-hmm. us then do relationships. That helps us then do parenting because yeah. that stuff was solid. So mm-hmm. this is that's the, that's the model that's in the book. Yeah, that's amazing. I I feel like I mean, again, I didn't grow up with any kind of significant religious shame present in my life, but obviously, as I said, you know, definitely, I'm sure there's pieces of sexual shame in there right. yeah. uh, that that could be super helpful to do. Um, yeah. And that is very directive. And I'm, I'm sure that I know in the book, there's also um, pieces that are helpful for clinicians to use with clients as well. And some of our listeners are in the helping field or are, are uh, working to being in the, in the helping field um, to where that, that model is very direct and specific. Um, but as you said, is also a practice as most things in therapy and in life are, it's a practice and um takes time to do. (laughs) Right. And then in in chapter seven, because you can do that model in chapter seven, I've got, um, actual like touch things. Like, so here's, here's ways that you can slowly integrate like Mm -hmm. touch and while staying present in your body and present in your eyes. So intention, attention, breath, eyes, skin, Mm -hmm. like here's how you do it. Because 
if most of our experiences were like, wham, bam, oh my gosh, here I'm in the middle of something and I didn't even want to be there. You don't know how to do things slow and intentionally and stay in your body or say, Mm -hmm. okay, I need to stop and breathe. And so there's a lot of just really slow, intentional, and then how you build up and really have deeply um, sort of integrative, like spiritual, if you want, kind of experiences Mm -hmm. where you're fully present with another. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because sometimes people don't even know how to do that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you can give maybe like if there's one in particular touch and non-touch exercise that you find you're uh, recommending to people the most or one that you find to be like super impactful um, in either of those categories? So one of the things I'll often talk about when couples feel really disconnected, mm-hmm. like we just keep just having really super boring mm-hmm. sex and, and we don't even touch each other anymore because I'm afraid if I touch, you know, then the train's out of the gate and then I have to, whatever, you, know, you hear that stuff all the time. And I'm like, okay, so we need to institute a kind of touch that doesn't mean a train is out of the gate. It just means I'm connecting to you again because, because you're important to me because I chose you. Okay. Um, so we're going to start, um, uh, where we don't do what I call flybys. We don't do any flybys. So no flyby kisses and no flyby hugs. And Mm. so when you do a hug or you do a kiss, it lands, but those do not mean sex. Yeah. That's like um... at least one flyby hug and one flyby kiss or one, no, no flyby hug and one, no flyby kiss a day. So Mm-hmm. That means a long hug and a long kiss that happens at some point in the day and it does not mean sex. So it's a, yeah. you know, a 10 second kiss and a three minute hug. And so then we talk about what those are. So a three minute hug is, you might be in the kitchen, whatever. I always say it's long enough for the kids and the dogs to get between you. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you stand next to each other. Your bodies are next to each other. You have one hand behind the heart, so in the middle of the back of the other, and the other hand is down at the base of the spine, and you pull each other close. And then you drop your shoulders, and you breathe slowly, and you slowly synchronize your breath. So you're breathing in at the same time and breathing out at the same time. And you do that for at least a minute, and you notice, are my shoulders dropped? Are we breathing together? Do I feel our bodies next to each other? I'm going to try to come home. I'm home. I'm going to come home. And you just do that real quietly together for at least a minute, minute and a half. And you let yourself come there because our lives are moving so fast. We're rarely in the same place that our body is. Mm -hmm. So we just let our mind and our bodies come there. And then we notice I'm with my person. Mm -hmm. This is my person. I'm going to let myself feel that I'm with my person. I did choose this person, right? So regardless of what's going on between you or whatever, let yourself get there that this is your person and this person's on your team, mm-hmm. okay? This person's on your team. No matter what's going on, you guys are on each other's team, right? Mm-hmm. Then in that last minute, imagine that when you are breathing out, you are sending the love that you've received in your life into that person. And imagine that when you're breathing in, you're breathing in the love that that person is sending out into you. And do that for a full minute. That no matter what's going on, you guys love each other. You do. 
no matter what you do, you're here, you're choosing each other and do that for a full minute Hmm. and just get there. And then when that minute's over, pull your head away, look in each other's eyes, do not say anything. You guys just came home to each other and then go about your day. So you're going to do that hug once a day. You're going to do one long kiss a day. This has nothing to do with sex. You're going to do that every day. Okay. Mm -hmm. I guarantee you that if you do that every day, it will begin to connect you. And all of a sudden the fact that he or she throws her wet towel on the bed, doesn't, Mm -hmm. you know, do the toothpaste in the right way. It'll start to not bother you as much. Because you'll begin to feel like, yeah, that's my person. And yeah, they, are, they do this shit and that shit. But it's just not going to bother you so much because you're reconnecting again. Mm-hmm. So that's just one, one little, little itty bitty thing. But there's lots of little things in there. Yeah. I mean, some of them that you can do for yourself even, just for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the way you describe that obviously makes sense that that would be helpful. Um, having those kind of moments of, you know, deepened physical touch that's not necessarily sexual, but that is connecting um, is also something that like that the Gottmans have studied and, you know, found is a part of a successful quote unquote relationship um, where you do the six second kiss a day. Right. So kind of, kind of similar to that. um, I'm definitely wishing, you know, poor Lily, my cat, she's going to be getting some really intense hugs from me because she's all I got to work with these days. (laughs) Um, but yeah. it could also be a, a exercise for yourself to do with yourself, to hug yourself and sit with your body in that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I have, mm-hmm. I have a story in the book about a woman who wasn't ready to be sexual, but she was, she had, I can't remember if she lost her husband or whatever, but mm. she would have these times every night where she would go sit in her hot tub and she would just sort of calm herself and center herself and sort of notice what she was grateful for in her life. And she would have this time where she would masturbate. Mm -hmm. And that was how she closed every day. And it was just this, it was sort of this sacred time that she would have every day, you know, because Mm -hmm. she was a single mom and she had just been through something hard, but she wasn't ready to get out there in the world yet at all, but she needed to keep her sexuality alive. She needed to keep centered with her body alive and she needed to stay grounded. And that's what she did. It was like her ritual. And it was really this lovely story, you know, the integration of sexuality and spirituality that she found a way to do. Definitely. Yeah. One of the listener questions was uh, how how they'll know if they're ready for sex and that they won't feel shame instilled from their religious upbringing. And I think that that piece could even be beneficial to something like that, right? If you're not ready for actual partnered sex yet, then it might be good to try to develop some kind of a moment in your day like this example um, where you are able to connect with yourself and checking in with any of that shame that's coming up and doing the the four-step model with that too. Absolutely. Yeah. I would say have times where you are actually imagining if you're, if you have still chosen to incorporate faith into your life, you know, have times where you bring that um, divine into your sexual practice and Mm -hmm. imagine that you're being blessed, that this was a gift given to you, that pleasure was a gift given to you Mm -hmm. because 
you are loved because you are beloved so that you have practiced that so that when you are with a lover, that you are allowing yourself to be loved and pleasure Mm -hmm. to be given to you, that you can imagine God or however you say it, the divine blessing you there too, because you've been practicing being blessed, Mm -hmm. you know, so that it's, that's not a stretch for you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That, acceptance of of pleasure of just for both from a religious standpoint but also just a you know your regular run-of-the-mill sexual shame um is is so big i think because just allowing ourselves and understanding that our bodies are literally built to experience pleasure and that that's a that's a freaking gift that is exactly right and it's so clear it's mm-hmm. so clear that that's how they're put together, which mm-hmm. is a great thing. It's worth celebrating. Yes, absolutely. Um, I feel like celebrating just from this episode because I'm like, yeah, <laughs> this is, <laughs> it's masturbation May. <laughs> like, yeah, damn right. We should be able to experience pleasure in our bodies. This is a beautiful thing um, that shame should not have a place in unless that like turns you on. Then that's a different story. <laughs> Using that <laughs> for that sexual pleasure is a little different. Um, yeah. But I just want to thank you so much for everything that you've shared with us. This has been so incredibly helpful. Um, I want to give people some resources from you. So obviously your book, Sex, God, and the Conservative Church. Um, But where else could people find you? Where could they find your book? Um, I got to say, in doing my stalking of you, you do so much. I am like, wow, she is everywhere. You founded um, a organization, both for clinicians and also just like an educational resource, the Northwest Institute on Intimacy. You founded the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. You are like a member on every board. Uh, You are like supervisor of the year. Like, I'm just like, all the all the snaps for you because you are doing some seriously needed work, but also doing like you are just working it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I want to say I didn't found the, the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. I was a part of that organization for a long time, mm, but okay, um, yeah. it's a it's it's a, which is a phenomenal organization. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was in medicine. I worked in medicine for a long time. Um, Mm-hmm. But, um, so, um, you can find me at, on Instagram at Dr. Tina Shameless Sess at sex. And, um, the Institute is on Instagram at NW Institute on intimacy. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, my, um, my website is Tina com, and the Institute website is nwioi.com. So that's the mm-hmm. Northwest Institute on Intimacy. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that is for training people like mm-hmm. you, training people who, what most people I think don't realize is that therapists, physicians, clergy, pelvic floor PTs, like all of our healers in the world are not in the world in, in the United States when they go to graduate school to learn that healing profession, they, because we are the country we are, they get at best one class on sexuality. Mm -hmm. And when we have had in the last 40 years, no comprehensive sex education, it means they haven't either. 
Absolutely. And so we have very few advanced postgraduate training programs, as you know, in mm-hmm. sexuality. We had nothing on the West Coast, really. And so mm-hmm. that's why we started the Northwest Institute on Intimacy. Mm-hmm. We now have one at Antioch that's mostly for their program. Yeah. Um, but that's why we started the Northwest Institute on Intimacy, to help people be able to get that training. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's been going gangbusters ever since, which was why I needed to leave my full-time teaching position at the university because mm-hmm. we've been just teaching, training so many people. We yeah. also really encourage then all the psychotherapists that go on to get that extra training to then list themselves on that website because we're trying to help the public understand yes. that you want to go see somebody who's trained individual, couple, family, sex therapy, and spiritual intimacy because then no matter what you bring to them, Mm-hmm. They have dealt with their sexual biases yes. and they can go with you wherever your story goes and they're not going to refer you on to see somebody. They're mm-hmm. going to stay with you, which is important for the public to know. So we have both of those things on that website. And then we also run intimacy retreats for couples that really mm-hmm. feel like they're struggling um, because you're going to struggle because we set you up to struggle in the United States because we give you nothing to succeed in your relationship. Um, mm-hmm. and so we, we started running those, those retreats, um, which yeah. has an, its own story of its own. So, um, yeah. so yeah. And the, but then the book sex, God in the conservative church, erasing shame from sexual intimacy that can be found anywhere that books are sold. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm always opening open to hear from people if they have questions about the book or, um, anything, because mm-hmm. I just really want to help people move forward in their lives. Yeah. That's so incredibly apparent because you are busy. Thank you so much again. It's been so, so, so great to chat with you. And I'm so happy that you're my neighbor. We're locals here in Seattle. So (laughs) me too. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, of course. All right, that does it for today's episode. Thank you so much for making it all the way through and keeping your ears, your hearts, and your minds open. It would mean so much to me if you could take a second or two after listening to this episode to leave a review on iTunes and let me know what you're enjoying about the show. I love reading you know, what your favorite episodes are, where you guys listen, um, and definitely feel free to share this with a friend. I mean, part of how we break down the stigmas around these topics is by talking about them, right? And, and sharing them with more people. So definitely share the podcast. Um, and again, really wanting to include all of you in this podcast. So if you have questions or you want to share a thought or an experience, please send in a voice memo to ask.letstalkaboutit at gmail.com. And I'm really excited to keep having these conversations and uh, breaking down these stigmas. So thank you all so, so, so much. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week and I'll talk to you next time. Surgeons keep our hearts beating. They do the amazing, help save lives, and so can you. Your CSL Plasma donation can help create 24 critical life-saving medicines that can give Grandpa the chance for his heart to swell when he meets his new grandson or give a bride the chance for her heart to skip a beat on her wedding day. Every plasma donation helps more than you know. Do the amazing. Help save lives. Donate today at your local CSL Plasma Center and be rewarded for your generosity.